The church has summarized it in Lord's Day 52 of the Heidelberg Catechism. It just so happens that I preached on Lord's Day 52 last Sunday at the Rehoboth Church. That's why I'm preaching on this. I have no axe to grind here this afternoon. Lord's Day 52 of our Heidelberg Catechism. What is the sixth petition? And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That is, in ourselves we are so weak that we cannot stand even for a moment. Moreover, our sworn enemies, the devil, the world, and our own flesh do not cease to attack us. Will you therefore uphold and strengthen us by the power of your Holy Spirit, so that in this spiritual war we may not go down to defeat, but always firmly resist our enemies until we finally obtain the complete victory. How do you conclude your prayer? For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That is, all this we ask of you because as our king, having power over all things, you are both willing and able to give us all that is good. And because not we, but your holy name should so receive all glory forever. What does the word amen mean? Amen means it is true and certain, for God has much more certainly heard my prayer than I feel in my heart that I desire of this, this of him. So far, our confession. After the sermon, we'll sing a hymn based on the Lord's Prayer, hymn 63, 1, 7, and 8. Dear congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord's Prayer is commonly known. It's very familiar. And I'm sure you know the order of the petitions. Even the children here this afternoon could probably tell me that. Just before this petition, we have the fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. So that's about the guilt of sin. We pray to God for the forgiveness of our sins, and the Bible tells us that when we pray to God for forgiveness, when we are repentant, then we will be forgiven. We have the assurance of the forgiveness of all our sins. We could hear that this morning, too, after the reading of the law from that text in Isaiah where God says that he will cast all our sins behind his back, nevermore to bring them up and hold them against us. And of course, in Jesus Christ, the foundation for that has been laid. So that's about the guilt of sin. And it's a wonderful thing to know that we are not guilty before God. We are innocent before God by grace through faith. And we can pray for the forgiveness of all our sins. Now, this afternoon, we're dealing with the sixth petition. And that petition is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. So that's about the power of sin. 
When the Lord Jesus came into this world, he broke the dominion of sin. The hold of sin has been broken. We're no longer held captive by sin. But the power of sin is still strong. And we deal with that every day. And so we need this sixth petition. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Because we have three sworn enemies. The devil, the world, and even our own flesh. And they cease not to attack us. So that's the first thing we're dealing with this afternoon. The final petition. The second thing we're dealing with this afternoon is the doxology with which the Lord's Prayer ends. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's a wonderful way to end our prayer, to praise God for everything that he is and for everything that he does for us. And the third thing we're doing this afternoon is focusing on that little word, amen. It is true and certain. So this afternoon I proclaim God's word to you about the ending of the Lord's Prayer. We'll know three things, the final petition, the concluding doxology, and the resounding amen. Now if you think about this sixth petition, and do not lead us into temptation, you might have a question right off the bat. Does God do that? And if so, does that somehow impact the goodness of God negatively? Well, the Bible teaches that God is good. And the Bible also teaches that God does not tempt anyone. We need to distinguish between God tempting someone and God leading someone into temptation. The Bible teaches that God does not tempt anyone. This is what we read in James chapter 1, 13 to 15, where James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. You know, sometimes when we fall into sin, we say, God made me do it. That's like saying, God tempted us to do it. We're sometimes inclined to blame God. But James says, you can't blame God. God tempts no one. We are lured and enticed by our own sinful desires, and those sinful desires which well up from within our sinful hearts lead us to commit acts of sin. So we cannot blame God, and James makes clear that God tempts no one. But that does not mean that God is not involved in these situations. Because if... Situations of temptation come upon us without the involvement of God. Let's say beyond the power of God. Then what does that say about God? Then God is a powerless God. 
who himself is held victim by the devil. But that's not what the Bible teaches. God is in control of evil also. And the Bible teaches that God allows evil things to happen. That's why we're praying and lead us not into temptation. Sometimes God allows us to land in a situation where we are tempted by the devil. And then we need to distinguish between what God is trying to achieve and what the devil is trying to achieve. God is testing us in those situations. God wants our faith to shine. He wants us to show in our lives that we are holding on to him. The devil wants to tempt us in those situations. He wants to bring us down. He wants us to fall. Misery seeks company, and the devil knows that he is going down. It's only a matter of time, and he wants to bring along with him as many as possible. You can consider the devil like an animal that has been dealt a death blow. An animal in such a situation might not immediately be totally powerless. The animal thrashes around a bit, its limbs move, and if you're not careful, you may even be struck in the process and hurt. Well, that's how it is with the devil. He is in his death throes, and that impacts us. He's thrashing out, he's lashing out, and he wants to hit us. He wants to take us down with him. He is a defeated enemy, but he still has power. But his power is firmly within God's control. And God allows him only to go so far and no further. The great reformer Martin Luther had an interesting way of expressing that when he used some imagery and compared the devil to a dog on a chain. When an animal is on a chain, it can run at you, but it can only go so far. And when it comes to the end of the chain, it's yanked back and that's it. Makes me think back to the days when I had a paper route and uh, there were some homes that I was not too enthusiastic to go to because they had a big, ferocious dog. Now, if I was lucky, the dog was on a chain. And that dog would lunge at me. I clearly remember the dog would lunge at me, but it was on a chain, and it could only go so far. Now, that's how it is with the devil. He can lunge at us, but he can only go so far. And I can show you that from the Bible. Just think of Job. The devil came to God when he was still able to go into heaven and accuse the saints before God. He said to God, Job is serving you for the benefits. Let me attack him, and we'll still see. We'll see if he still serves you. So God said, Okay, 
You can touch his possessions and his children, but not himself. There was the limit. That was the length of the chain God allowed. And you know how that went? Job lost his possessions and all his children. That was a horrible experience for him. God allowed it, but he himself wasn't touched in his own person. Then the devil said, yeah, but now let me touch him and we'll see. God said, okay, I'll extend the chain a bit and you can touch him, but you can't take his life. You know the story? Job got leprosy. He was seriously ill. The story of Job shows that the devil can only do so much. The chain is only so long. And the purpose of that was for God to show that Job was really serving him for the right reasons, that Job's faith was for real. And the devil's purpose in the temptations was to bring Job down. And this is how the devil operates. Already right in the beginning of this world's history, when God had put Adam in the Garden of Eden, there was a test and there was a temptation. Because God put that one tree in the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and God said, you may eat of every tree in the garden except that one. That was a test of Adam's faith. It was a test of Adam's love for God. It was a test of whether Adam would serve God and whether Adam realized his place, that he was under God as the vice-regent of God on this earth. And the devil came along and said, you believe that? You can be your own boss. You don't have to be vice-regent. You can be the regent. You can be the king. Take control of your own life. Live life on your own terms and forget about God. That was the temptation. And we know the story. We fell into sin. Now when the Lord Jesus came to this earth, he came as the second Adam. Adam in paradise was the first Adam. The Apostle Paul says that the Lord Jesus is the second Adam. He came as one of us. That's what we're celebrating at Christmas. He came flesh of our flesh, bone of our bone, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those under law. The Lord Jesus came to fulfill all righteousness for us, to serve God perfectly, and then to bear the punishment for our sins. So we read from Matthew chapter 4 this afternoon, and that's the account of the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. I'm sure you children here this afternoon also know it. The passage starts with a very important little word. Then. Then. Then 
Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. When was then? Well, right after he had been baptized in the Jordan River. Right after the Holy Spirit had descended upon him. This was when the Lord Jesus had begun his public ministry. He'd been born in Bethlehem, but it took quite a few years before the Lord Jesus began his public ministry. And that baptism in the Jordan River represented the fact that he was taking all our sins upon himself. He was baptized for us. And that anointing with the Holy Spirit meant that he was equipped to be our Savior. Then the devil led him up, the Spirit led him up into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And there he was, 40 days and 40 nights. He was fasting. He was down and out. He was vulnerable. He was weak. That's what happens when you fast, when you don't eat. We can all relate to that. If you don't eat for a long time, you're weak. And then the devil came. The Lord Jesus was preparing himself in the wilderness for his ministry. But he was there as the second Adam, and the question was, would the Lord Jesus stand the test? Would he be faithful to God? Would he do what the first Adam had failed to do? The devil was there to bring the Lord Jesus down, to take him away from serving the Lord. So we read about three temptations. I'm not going into them in detail. I'm not preaching on that passage. Three temptations. When the Lord Jesus was down and out. And isn't that how it is for us today too? When we're weak, when we're down and out, when we're vulnerable, when we're facing the crises of life, when we're faced with a big challenge, the devil comes at us, and he says, you don't have to do it God's way. You can do it your own way. And there's always that tension. Will we listen to the voice of heaven and follow the call of God? Or will we listen to the voice of hell and follow the voice of the devil. And these tests and temptations can be severe. Just think of Job again. The man lost everything. His possessions, then his children, then his own health. He had his questions. And he had those friends that came to visit him and offered their free advice, and they said to Job, Job, you must have done something wrong. You must have sinned. God must be angry with you. You must be worse than other believers. That was, of course, totally wrong, and that's apparent from the book of Job. Then he had the person closest to him in life, his wife, 
And of course, she was impacted by all of this too because they were her possessions too and they were her children too and Job was her husband and they were sitting with leprosy. And she said to Job, curse God and then kill yourself. Say goodbye to God. How can you still believe in this God who lets all of this happen to you? A good God doesn't do that. Say goodbye to God. And then commit suicide. This was a real severe temptation for Job, but Job kept on holding on to God. And he made that wonderful statement in Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he shall stand upon the earth. He will defend me, and I will be there with all the righteous. George Frederick Handel, when he wrote The Messiah, included that passage from Job in his oratorio. A wonderful confession of faith and many struggling believers have taken those very words on their lips he passed the test he held on to God and then think of somebody else we read about in the Old Testament Abraham the father of all believers he'd been waiting so long for a child he and Sarah were elderly, and finally the child came, contrary to any human expectation. A miracle. Just like the birth of Christ was unexpected. The Lord does the unexpected thing in the history of redemption. These two people had a child, a son, and the Lord said, now give him back to me. The Lord didn't say, kill him. The Lord said, sacrifice him to me, offering him up to me. And Abraham went on a journey to Moriah, and the boy was with him, and he said, but Dad, where's the wood for the fire? And Abram said, my son, the Lord will provide. And he bound him to the altar, and he took the knife, and he had the knife raised, ready to sacrifice his only son. And then there was that voice from heaven that said, Abraham, that's enough. Now I know that you believe. Now I know that your faith is real. You've proven it. And you can just imagine, brothers and sisters, when Abraham was on that journey to Moriah, all kinds of questions must have gone through his mind. The whisperings of the devil. How is this possible? This is supposed to be the child, the promised one. And now God wants you to sacrifice him? But Abraham withstood all of that. He resisted the temptation, and he stood the test, and the Bible says that the Lord was pleased with him. Severe temptation in the life of Job 
and in the life of Abraham. And we can experience severe temptation too. Illness does that. Suddenly you get a death warrant. Cancer. Inoperable and incurable. And you know your days are numbered. You can be elderly or young. Financial hardship. You don't know how you're going to make ends meet. It can be severe. There can be other things too. You want a boyfriend or a girlfriend and, well, the temptation is there to, to go out into the world and find someone. You meet someone you really like, but it's not a Christian. What are you going to do? They can be severe. And the question is always, will we hold on to God, or are we going to find our own way? Are we going to say, why, Lord, is this happening to me? And are we going to say farewell to God? These temptations are severe, and we should never overestimate ourselves. We should never underestimate the power of temptation. We are three sworn enemies, sworn enemies. That's what the catechism says. The devil, the world, and our own flesh, they cease not to attack us. They are in a conspiracy against us. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Luther spoke about the devil as a dog. Peter speaks about the devil as a lion, and you can just picture it. A lion is the kind of animal that prowls around, ready to pounce. Peter says, resist him, standing firm in the faith. That's why we are praying. And deliver us from the evil one. These temptations are severe. And we call out to God, spare us that, deliver us from the evil one. There's a real battle going on. And we call out to God from the midst of those temptations. Lord, spare us that. And that also means, I say this now as an aside, that if we pray this petition, we should also do what we can to avoid situations of temptation. Maybe I'll just give you an example. Let's say you're young and you've got friends that are a bad influence. Maybe you need to ask yourself, are these the kind of friends I should be hanging out with? Are they helping me in my walk with the Lord or are they pulling me away from my walk with the Lord? And I'm not only talking about people out there in the world, Sometimes you have to say the same thing about people in the church. Not every covenant child is faithful. Are they helping me or are they causing me to stray? In ourselves, we cannot stand for a moment. And so we pray, Lord, Help us to resist these temptations from the devil. Give us the strength of the Spirit. Uphold us by 
your power, your word and spirit. How does God do that? Well, he does that by his word. He does that by way of prayer. In this passage that we read this afternoon, the Lord Jesus answered the devil's temptations with three scripture texts. He had an answer every time the devil came at him. My question to you is, if the devil comes at you, do you have an answer from scripture? I'm not saying that for every temptation there is a direct answer from Scripture, but are we in the Word enough to be able to figure out what God would want us to do? Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 6, put on the whole armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. And then he says, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take that sword. And a good soldier knows how to use his weapon. We've been given the word as a weapon. Do we know how to handle our weapon? Do we know the word? And Paul says, and pray in the spirit on all occasions. Pray. Be in the word and pray. The Lord Jesus knew the word. He studied it already as a boy. You can read he was in the temple discussing the word of God. And the Lord Jesus went off to pray many times. You read it in the Gospels. He went away from people to be by himself, to, to not be surrounded by the noise and the activity and to pray. And then the final thing, the doxology, the concluding doxology, briefly. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. It's a song of praise. That's what a doxology is. And we've come full circle in the Lord's Prayer because we begin our prayer by saying, Our Father in heaven, in heaven. That means God is the God who is powerful, to whom belongs the kingdom, to whom comes the glory. We ask for much in the Lord's Prayer, those six petitions. But the doxology says much about God. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. God's is the kingdom. He is the king and we are his subjects the citizens of the kingdom. As believers, we're citizens of the kingdom, and God, as our king, listens to the cries of his citizens. He hears us. And his is the power. He is the king. He is almighty. In the Apostles' Creed this afternoon, we're going to confess, I believe in God the Father almighty, creator of heaven and earth. He is almighty. He is able to give us what we ask of him. And to him belongs the glory. All six of those petitions are ultimately about God's glory. And then I think about the angelic chorus that came down to this earth on the night of Christ's birth. 
and they sang a doxology. Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. And really, when we conclude our prayers with that concluding doxology, our doxology joins the doxology of that angelic host, which sang glory to God in the highest. And then the resounding amen, that little word, which means it is true and certain. It's a confession on our behalf that God has certainly heard our prayer. It's more certain that God has heard our prayer than even the fact that we desire these things of him. It's certain. It's our acknowledgement that God hears our prayers for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Savior, because he is our Father in heaven and we are his covenant children. But that does not mean that we will necessarily receive that for which we ask. Sometimes we make that mistake. But sometimes when we pray, we don't pray for the right things. God knows what's best for us. And sometimes the things we pray for are not best for us. The Bible also teaches that God makes all things work together for the good of our salvation. That's what Paul writes in Romans 8. That means God is using our different experiences in life to shape us and mold us so that we are ready to enter the kingdom of heaven in all its glory. And God answers our prayers in accordance with his eternal purposes for our lives. God knows best, and God will answer according to his eternal plan. And when we entrust our lives to God, then we can live with the fact that God does not always give us that for which we ask. Because we know that as our Father, he has our best intentions at heart. Like it says in Psalm 103, as a father, he has compassion upon us. He has a plan, and he's working out his plan, and has our best interests at heart. And when we say amen, we're saying it's true and certain that God has heard my prayer. And then we may say that knowing what David said in Psalm 138. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. And that purpose is our salvation in Jesus Christ. Amen.